This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon and welcome to the Sunday edition of the best of Fight Back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. The Wee charity controversy died down a bit this past week after reaching a crescendo the week before with appearances in front of the Commons Finance Committee by the Wee co-founder Kielberger Brothers and Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. So far, the consensus seems to be that the brothers did a poor job coming across as smug, arrogant and dismissive, while the opinion is divided on what Justin Trudeau offered. If you believe the timeline he put forward, and the opposition conservatives do not, not only was the PM not involved in the decision to hand we this half a billion dollar program, but he tried to push back on it. Trudeau and his finance minister, Bill Morneau, have repeatedly apologized for their failure to recuse themselves from the decision, though Trudeau insists he was not in an actual conflict of interest. Libby discussed events up to Holiday Monday with Jason Leader, conservative strategist and president at Enterprise, and Bob Richardson, liberal strategist and senior counsel to national public relations. Well, you know, this is not exactly the high watermark for the government, but uh, and it's a bit of an unforced error. But, um, you know, I don't think it's fatal by any means. I don't think there's any malfeasance here. I think there's been sloppiness on the part of the government. And also, I'm going to say, I think it's a little entitled. Sometimes these guys should be more focused on what the rules are. They think they're doing good work. Uh, and as a result of doing good work, uh, you know, geez, if, if things get a little messy from time to time, so be it. Well, government doesn't work that way. So, uh, well, I don't think that there's anything here, um, you know, to, to crush a government. Uh, at the same time, there's not a lot here to uh, stand up and applaud about either. Jason? This one wasn't good for a lot of different reasons. The, I think the worst part for Trudeau and his team is that it's pretty easily understandable for people. Like, the worst things of this scandal are actually sort of behind the scenes. They're hard to understand. The easiest thing to understand is his mom and his brother uh, were paid by a charity that he it looks like, at least it appears to most people, that he went out of his way to, to help in a, in a sort of way that, um, you know, it sounds a little fishy to people. So there's a couple of things. I thought the Kielbergers were very bad um, the other day. I thought they were like a little bit juvenile in the first half, and I thought they were a bit, a bit weirdly combative in the second half. I thought Mr. Trudeau, for the first hour, did a terrific job in terms of what he was trying to do. I thought his second hour... Uh, opened him up to some criticism, and I thought Ms. Telford was pretty solid as well. So I'm I'm not very far off where Bob is, to be honest, which is this isn't their finest hour. In fact, it's quite so bad. I think Mr. Morneau might have to walk the plank. Um, I think the office and he just, he, the whiff of entitlement is there. It's just, you know, there's this rarefied air of, of, of guys running around Toronto handing each other $41,000 vacations and then $900 million programs that I think for the regular people will sort of look and say, what the, what the hell is this? Well, yeah, and, uh, it's... So it, it, not a good week. Not a good week at all. I also do think, um, 
and I'm not trying to offload the blame on this one because ultimately it is the, the folks who are elected who are responsible. Uh, I, I think given the track record on some of these issues, uh, we need uh, both the, uh, the finance minister and the prime minister uh, need to strengthen their offices in terms of dealing with these issues. There's clearly been a problem here. And I think that this needs to be, uh, you know, at the top of the uh, uh, at the top of the agenda, not the bottom of the agenda. And people need to be taking a real close look at this. Bob, do you think that uh, Morneau's going to have to go? Look, I think he's been a pretty decent uh, finance minister. If you take a look at our uh, how we've done in comparison to other G7 nations, it's you know a pretty much a decent story. Uh, I think he has been. He's worked hard. Uh, I don't know him personally that well, but he's uh, uh, he strikes me as a very decent, uh, thoughtful, hardworking guy. I think that's all good. I think it's just not acceptable to have these sort of situations, though. So at the very uh, least, I think he, he will have to be severely chastised for this, and, uh, and, and it's time for the government to move on. It is a minority government. Uh, your ability to make changes are more limited uh, in these circumstances. So uh, do I ultimately expect him to go? Probably not at the moment. Jason, uh, is is Morneau going to go? And it certainly sounded like the prime minister was throwing him under the bus. I don't know if he's going to go, but he should go. It's, it, can you imagine Bill Morneau standing in the commons to bring a budget in? Um, you know, the heckling, the, the lack of legitimacy. And I know like it looks like theater to a lot of people out there, but Generally, the finance minister is the, one of the most well-respected members of the House under both liberal and conservative rule, and this guy is not respected amongst his peers anymore. They don't look across the uh, across the aisle and say that guy's sort of got his act together. They look at the guy across the across the aisle and say that guy's completely out of it. Conservative strategist Jason Leader and liberal strategist Bob Richardson in conversation with Libby Snymer on Holiday Monday. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Have you downloaded the federal government's new COVID alert app? Do you even have the right technology to do so? Since the app was released in late July, there's been more than a little criticism not over privacy concerns, but because you need a relatively new smartphone and operating system to make it work. And this may exclude lower-income people and some older people. On Wednesday, Fightback offered a how-to on the COVID Alert app with Dr. Ray Dianandon, an epidemiologist and associate professor in the Faculty of Health Sciences at the University of Ottawa, and Carmi Levy, a technology analyst and journalist based in London, Ontario. It's running in the background. The phone has to be powered on. Um, so if the phone is physically powered off, it will not do what it's supposed to do. But uh, otherwise, once you install it, it will, and as long as the phone's powered on, uh, either in your pocket or your bag, and as you go business, you know, in public accessible spaces, it will send out a Bluetooth signal, uh, you know, out to a radius of a few meters, roughly about how far Bluetooth usually works. And it will look for signals from other phones that have the app installed and are doing the same thing. And as as it does that, when it when it sort of finds one, it will then swap codes. It's a randomly generated anonymous code, uh, can't be traced back to your name or any information. And it just keeps tabs, you know, on this, you know, on, on this date at this time, uh, with this signal strength, I, I cross paths with this uh, particular phone for this particular amount of time. Um, if someone in that group then, then uh, eventually tests positive, 
they have the option of advising the app as you uh, that they tested positive. And then, of course, anyone who spent more than 15 minutes in close proximity to that individual will receive a notification along with guidance to, if they wish to, contact public health officials to seek further care. That's pretty much it. It only uses Bluetooth. It only works in, it works in the background only when it's powered on, um, and it doesn't connect to any other services on the phone that would allow it to be reverse engineered, figure out who you are, where you've been, doesn't use location services, contacts, camera, anything like that. Okay, let's bring in Dr. Ray Dionandon. How useful is this going to be, in your opinion? Where it really becomes helpful is that this app replaces or augments an imperfect human memory. So if you were to ask someone in busy downtown Toronto, list everyone that you've been in contact with in the last two weeks. If you've been to coffee shops or restaurants or, or taken the subway or the, or the streetcar, you probably cannot make that list. But this app replaces that need to make a list and creates a perfect memory of those interactions. So when used appropriately and by enough people, it can really help contact tracing such that we can track down anyone who's been exposed to the virus and hopefully have them tested and quarantined. Dr. Dionandon, I, I saw a survey the other day which said that a, a, a fair percentage of people are a little hesitant about the vaccine, and it's not the usual vaccine uh, hesitancy deniers, but people are kind of saying, well, if it's a new thing, I do have questions. What, what, what do you make of that? I don't blame them. Uh, it's perfectly reasonable to be hesitant about a new medication that hasn't gone through the fullness of the safety testing yet. Unfortunately, that means that we're going to be slow towards achieving artificial herd immunity, which is what a vaccine offers us. Keep in mind that no vaccine is perfectly safe or perfectly effective. Um, I agree that there won't be a silver bullet. There are a lot of factors here that will prevent its full uptake and full effectiveness. That means that we're going to have to have some public health measures in place for a long period of time. But miracles do happen, right? So it may be an extraordinarily good vaccine, and we may have an extraordinarily good distribution system, which is yet to be seen. And uh, maybe it'll be a vaccine that doesn't require many booster shots. If that's the case, then one shot would do it. And maybe it'll be a vaccine that offers immunity for more than a few months, even though that means that's probably unlikely. It'll probably require a couple of booster shots every few months. If that's the case, then we'll be out of the woods sooner than we thought. But well, we can't bank on those things. Uh, Carmi, anything you want to leave us with? Um, you know, I think we all have a decision to make. The more of us who participate in this, the more likely it is to actually help people. So uh, have that conversation, make that call, and then head to the App Store and, App Store and download it now. Okay. And uh, Ray? We're doing well. Everyone's doing so well. And I think we got to keep on uh, trying to protect each other and do the responsible thing. I have faith in my fellow Canadians. Dr. Ray Dianandon, epidemiologist and associate professor in the Faculty of Health Sciences at the University of Ottawa, and Carmi Levy, a technology analyst and journalist in London, Ontario. Especially critical in light of the crisis in long-term care during COVID-19, new information on caregivers and caregiving was released this past week. Researchers at the Canadian Institute of Health Information measured the percentage of people newly admitted to long-term care who had similar health characteristics as those living at home with formal support. They found that about one in nine potentially could have been cared for at home. This represents more than 5,000 long-term care spaces across the country. They also found that nearly all people who receive care at home have an informal caregiver. But this analysis also shows that more than one in three unpaid caregivers experience distress, 
which can include feelings of anger or depression or the inability to continue with caring activities. On Thursday, Libby Snymer discussed the results with a panel of experts. David Kravitz, Vice President at Zoomer Media, Amy Kupal, CEO of the Ontario Caregiver Organization, and Miranda Ferrier, President and Founder of the Ontario Personal Support Worker Association. There's many people that are in long-term care that could have been kept home, but unfortunately, due to the shortage of personal support workers, the lack of, of hours through the government, um, people are forced into long-term care facilities. Amy, what about the numbers on caregivers? I mean, again, you know, it's not a surprise that caregivers are in distress, informal caregivers. What do you make of this? Well, in Ontario, we're certainly seeing similar numbers compared to those national figures. Uh, Our recent research indicates that one in three caregivers say they're not coping well. And when caregivers are supporting someone with a mental health challenge, that number increases to more than half. So, This certainly aligns with the kind of data that we're seeing and the input that we receive from caregivers about some of the challenges that they face. David? Well, I think it's it's very true to echo what what our other guests have said. Um, There's another aspect to this that makes it even worse. And this is um, quoting research from the States, and I wonder if we found the same here, is that many caregivers are uh, affected on the job. So they're working. And they're being a caregiver. And John Hancock Insurance did research into this. About 25% of caregivers said they had either turned down a promotion or a relocation that would have benefited their career because of the pressure of caregiving. So the cost to the economy is, it's just a cascade of, of bad side effects of being a caregiver. Is there any hope, anyone, that this somehow might get sorted out in the, in the new model of the Ontario health teams? I can answer that actually really quickly because yeah. we're involved with uh, the write up surrounding home and community care and congregate care in relation to Bill 175. And we actually just read through it a few weeks ago and uh, it's not looking bad. It's actually looking very promising. And one of the best things that, that the revisions that they're looking to make in this bill is to lift the ceiling on the amount of hours that somebody requires in a week for care, in home care. So instead of that 14-hour max, there wouldn't be a max. And, so to and us, it's it, very promising. A lot of families it, need that out of care. Well, yeah, and that model of kind of a care team, would that do anything to solve the navigation piece? I think so, because there'd be a direct um, kind of, you know, community in a community. So everyone in the, in the community would know where to go in order to obtain that information. Right now, like you said, there's the Ontario health teams, there's still the LINs, and we still don't know what's going on. Hopefully they ramp up um, speed on getting the Ontario health teams completed and getting rid of the LINs uh, completely so that there is no more confusion. Okay. Anything anyone else wants to leave us with, Amy? I think it's really important to keep talking about this and the Kaihai data, as I mentioned, aligns with the data that we've been gathering as well. Uh, if we look at unpaid caregivers, they are such a critical component of the healthcare system that we've got to find a way to, to ensure that they can continue to play that role. So that access to home care and those supports for caregivers are really, really key in whatever model uh, that evolves. Somewhere in their system, somewhere in their planning, if it's only a little research team off to the side, someone's got to start with a blank piece of paper. Rather than say, here's our system, how can we hopefully plug her in a little bit better? 
what is what would it look like from her point of view? And that encompasses navigation, that encompasses health teams, the, the, the customer point of view, if you will, the patient point of view. They need to be able to put that lens on this. So far, I've seen, um, I've been hanging around this issue for, as you know, does, yeah. over a decade. Decades. Uh, <laughs> nobody, they don't bring that point of view. They bring the point of view of this is our system and, oh, uh, maybe you can fit in a little it's bit easier difficult. over there. In, in our health system, change. it's, it's, very, it's very revolutionary yeah. for them, but uh, you Let's never hope know. Hope springs eternal. That's right. David Kravitz, VP at Zoomer Media, Amy Kupel, CEO of the Ontario Caregiver Organization, and Miranda Ferrier, President and Founder of the Ontario Personal Support Worker Association. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. It's an uneasy time for parents and grandparents of elementary school children. At the height of the COVID-19 pandemic, most grandparents could not even see their grandchildren, not to mention their children. Now many are bubbled with them, a joy and a blessing. There's every indication most older people are sticking to the rules and limiting their contacts. But what will happen when their elementary school-aged grandchildren go back to school, unmasked, with sometimes 30 kids in a class? Libby had this conversation with grandparent David Kravitz, also VP at Zoomer Media, family physician Dr. Iris Gorfinkel, and Dr. Gerald Evans, chair of the Division of Infectious Diseases at Kingston General Hospital. What we have here really is um, a juxtaposition of two uh, issues. One is the safety of uh, restarting schools in the setting of a pandemic, and the other one is recognizing the uh, significant impact that not being at school has on children in terms of their uh, ongoing development as humans and, uh, and and all those other learning things. And those are uh, that intersection of those two things is really where the challenge lies, uh, and uh, it's really looking at that balance right now. Iris, uh, what are you telling your patients? There's no question. Kids gain tremendously socially. The stability, their physical well-being, they get meals. It allows parents and guardians to re-enter the workforce. Hugely important that schools reopen. But it will have an impact on the social bubble. And in my view, we need to open the social bubble in phases. So, for example, if you're used to being with your grandchild now and you're at high risk, it makes a lot of sense to keep totally away from that grandchild. That person is excluded from the immediate social circle. We can do Zoom. We can do phone calls. We can be together, but not physically for the first two to four weeks just to keep our ear to the ground, just so that we know what's happening in that space. We've been humbled by what's happened in Israel. When Israel reopened the schools, they saw a huge resurgence of cases. And it's very difficult to know exactly what's around the corner. It's just too hard to try to quantify that and too risky not to make sure we reopen in phases. David, are, are your grandson is starting to go to school. Are, yeah. are you going to you know, stop seeing him? No, uh, but I like what uh, Iris just said, because if there were specific steps that I knew about, so for example, in my case, we FaceTime, uh, we visit, we have social distancing because it's summer, he can play outdoors, I can be the requisite number of feet away and, and see him. Uh, now he goes, he's starting kindergarten, he'll be in school, he's already in a summer camp, in a day camp. The question then becomes, 
if I hear of something, so to put into action what Irish just said, what do I do? Do I need to hear of something? What if some other kid at the school got affected? What my daughter is worrying about is really the management of the schools because what if a sibling, someone in their class got infected and the main kid isn't infected? There's so many permutations and combinations that have not been laid out, frankly, with the specificity that uh, Dr. Gorfinkel just did. I think that's what we need. If this then do this. If this, then do that. It won't be that tough if that's the way we do it. But if it's just left, you know, in a vacuum, you're going to get a mess. I'm sure, you know, you maintain distancing, which is good. So I think that, you know, if I'm taking what Iris said at the beginning, for people at high risk, go back to Zoom, uh, as opposed to in person. I'm sure there are a lot of grandparents who are bubbled with their grandchildren yes, and who are who are physically close to them. And maybe those social bubbles need to be redefined for high risk patients, and also in which the rate of infection in the community is high. Let's take a look at who's really dying. It would definitely be a mistake to bring a child who's back in school in any long term care institution. So those who are at really high risk at home, these are individuals who should not have physical contact with children who are now returning to school. So let's be really, you know, very open about who that is. It's not necessarily absolutely everybody. It's not necessarily true for communities with really low, super low prevalences. But let's not delude ourselves. We do not know what's going to happen when all the children go back to school. We do know that we don't have the resources to support small classes. We don't have the resources to ensure that every single child is wearing a mask all the time, nor can we assume that desks will be six feet apart. And we've heard from that bus driver, my goodness, they've got at least 30 kids coming on that bus route, and they're on there for who knows how long. Family physician Dr. Iris Gorfinkel, David Kravitz, VP at Zoomer Media, and Dr. Gerald Evans, Chair of the Division of Infectious Diseases at Kingston General Hospital. I'm Jane Brown, and you're listening to the best of Fight Back. Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. Here are some of this week's best calls. Ron in Guelph phoned to talk about safety precautions for school buses when schools reopen next month. I'm a school bus driver in Guelph, Wellington, and the protocols are putting in there for the bus drivers to have uh, shields or masks and sanitize the bus after every run. Um, how, many kid, lower the class how many now. kids do you have on your bus? For me, it's going to be difficult because I carry probably 60 kids, so... They're in one bus? Oh, yeah. And have there been any talks about cutting down the number of kids at a time? Well, what they're going to end up doing in my case, I've got the, the time to uh, split the route up. I don't have to travel for 20 kilometers or 15 kilometers. So I'll end up picking up part of the route, drop them off at the school, and then go back and get the other part of the route that I would normally carry all on one bus. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week comes from Donna, who is a caregiver and talked about the extreme stress she endures. It's frustrating. It's painful. It's, he's abusive. It's just not good at all. It's difficult. I have a 100-kilometer commute 
daily. And then I go home, and it's the house to look after, the lawn to cut, him to take care of. I had a respite visit on the weekend. I was supposed to have. I thought, great, I can get away. I got to my destination, and they called me and said, we can't fill the visit today. Oh, my God. I got home after the weekend. He hadn't taken any of his medication. You know, it's just, you, you think you've got these people for backup and that you can count on so that you can get a break and can get away from it. Just doesn't happen. Donna, thank you for calling with your story. That does it for this week's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby and have your say anytime on our Fightback voicemail at 416 367 9636. 416 416- Three six seven nine six three six. I'm Jane Brown. Join us again next weekend when we'll round up the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer Moses Nimer. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.